Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. If an apple a day keeps the doctor away, we've got tons of apples. Woo! We'll talk about Franklin County Cider Days this weekend and about turning apples into fire cider. But first, a doctor and the sun! Dr. Karen Johnson is a professor of neurology at UMass Chan Medical School and is the medical director of the Sleep Medicine Program at Bay State Health here in Western Massachusetts. She's a national leader fighting against, or I guess for what's going to happen this weekend when we fall back and return to standard time. Dr. Karen is fighting for permanent standard time. Dr. Johnson is co-chair of the Coalition for Permanent Standard Time, a collaboration between American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Sleep Research Society, National Sleep Foundation, Society for Research on Biological Rhythms, and Save Standard Time, which she is also the vice president of. This may give me and us a gist of the reasoning why we want one time instead of two. Dr. Johnson says that Western Mass has been leading the fight to end seasonal clock change, as we will be doing again on November 5th. Representative Angelo Pupolo introduced a bill H3103 for permanent standard time. Dr. Johnson has published both academically and in the lay press on this issue and has been on podcasts and radio interviews like this except for on NPR Weekend Edition. She's created and hosted a 12 video educational series filmed and created in downtown Springfield where she makes her home by New York Sound and Motion called The Science of Clock Change. She recently testified on Beacon Hill on behalf of making standard time permanent and she joins us today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Karin. Thank you. Now, Khalees and I hate the darkness that will affect us this weekend and love the sun and heat. You're going to be here to try to convince us why I think we can all agree that changing back and forth the clocks is a little bit bonkers. We think more sunlight later in the day, but you are a doctor who's trying to save standard time. You're even wearing a button that says save standard time on it right now. I like that it says noon means noon. <laughs> I didn't even see that. Wonderful. Tell us why you want to save standard time, which we will return to this weekend. So first, you know, it is very popular to end clock change, and we certainly want to do that. There's harms. We see increased strokes, heart attacks, car accidents, kids do worse in school, you know, especially in those weeks after the clock change. So there's sort of no question about that. But I like to think about the choice of whether going to standard time or daylight savings time. Like my kids saying, you know what? Good news, mom. I'm healthier. I stopped eating that plate of pancakes. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm eating a pound of bacon instead. Yes. <laughs> While the change is bad, if we go to daylight savings time, it'll actually be worse. And it all goes back to that noon is noon. So we have clocks in our entire body that make up our circadian rhythms, and they really control all our things we do. When we can wake up, when we um, our brains are working, when our stomach is digested. And when they're aligned with what we do in our day, we are healthier, we are safer, our brain works better, so we're more productive at work, our kids do better in school. And that's what we get with standard time. It's called standard time because that sun is more closely aligned till noon. So what does it matter if noon is noon? Isn't time relative? Einstein taught us all about this. So do, why do our bodies care that noon is noon and not one? <laughs> so <laughs> the sun is a very powerful thing. So our bodies stay aligned to the sun. We, we know that even months after we make the time change, our like cortisol rhythms stay within three minutes of sun time rather than that hour change that we made on our clocks. You know, if you've ever tried to say, oh, I got to get up early for my work and I got to get to bed by nine o'clock so I can 
get up by five and then you just can't. You know, you're stuck, you know, trying to fall asleep 10, 11 and you just don't get enough sleep. So the irony is a lot of people that think they like daylight savings time are the night owls. They're actually harmed the most because they're more likely to have that difficulty falling asleep and getting up. And the people it hurts the most, again, are teenagers, adolescents, those that already have that naturally late rhythm and anyone who has work or school um, and has to get up before 8 a.m. And that's the most of the population. Why do these things affect health? If you're getting a normal amount of sleep, which we can talk about what that's supposed to be. Normal is different for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Why does it matter when that sleep happens so much? So there's four main qualities of sleep. One is duration. One is the quality, how good that sleep is. One is the timing of sleep. We know if your average sort of midpoint of sleep is after 3.30 in the morning, there's more health risks. And then the last that's sort of the most important for daylight savings time is what we call social jet lag. So when people on average get the same kind of total amount of sleep, but they're sleeping in a a lot later in the re- in the weekends than on, they do on the weekdays. There's a misalignment, and again, our body clocks aren't helping our body anticipate our day and function and be as healthy. So we see when the sun is an hour later, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of obesity, increased risk of fatal car accidents, suicide, depression. Even though people think, "Oh, it'd be great if I get a little bit more light at the end of the day," it actually doesn't add up when you look at these health consequences. Is the sun our enemy then? Because the sun naturally stays out later in the summer than it does at other times of year. So how come that doesn't affect our health in the same way? So the sun can be a powerful ally and it can be a powerful (laughs) enemy. (laughs) So I think of it like Superman. If we have Superman on our side and we have the sun helping our body, it helps us. We're healthier. And we really get that when we get sun in the morning. But if we get sun at the wrong time of day, if we actually get too much sun at night, we have more trouble sleeping, we have higher rates of depression. Depression, um, and it's working against us like kryptonite. So summer is bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the problem is a lot of people link in their minds daylight savings time to summer, which is why they think daylight savings time is great. And they link standard time to winter, which is why they think it's bad. Yes. Mm. But you need to separate what we call the photo period, which is the length of daylight, which is why winter is bad, (laughs) and the the longer length of, of daylight in the summer, which is why summer is good from the timing. You know, longer days are better. That's why already in March, when the days are getting longer, we're feeling better. Our mood's getting better. But that has nothing to do with the time. And in fact, when we go and we switch back to daylight savings time in the spring, you know, we're starting to feel horrible again. We're, we're losing those benefits we were just getting from those longer days. And they stick with us the whole time we're on daylight savings time. And a lot of people don't realize it because there are benefits to the, those longer and summer days. We're speaking with Dr. Karen Johnson, professor of neurology at UMass Chan Medical Center and the medical director of the sleep medicine program at Bay State Health from here in Springfield and evangelist for keeping standard time, which we will experience again this weekend as we fall back with the clocks. (laughs) In your video, this idea promotes equality. How so? So... Daylight savings time doesn't affect the population evenly. If you have the luxury of sleeping in till 8.30, you aren't aren't harmed too much by it. But if you have to get up early, 
you know, you're going to be more affected. I mean, you think about who is more likely to have jobs that start early. It disproportionately falls on minorities. There's about twice as many minorities that have jobs that start before 7 a.m. I would assume women, too. Well, the parents, (laughs) being parents. um, So we know on average a working adult loses about 19 minutes of sleep when the sun is an hour later. But unworking parents who have kids that they need to get up to school lose about 23 minutes of sleep. If you have to get up by 7 a.m., you lose about 31 minutes of sleep. And so lower income workers, minorities tend to be disproportionately affected. And, and there was a great study on education in Indiana that looked at this. So Indiana used to have the majority of the state on standard time. And so they looked at 10 years of SAT data and found that on average, there was about 16 point lower SAT scores in the part of the state that was on daylight savings time. But it was 49 points lower if you were the lowest income and only eight points lower if you're highest income. So everyone was harmed, but much more so the lower income. I hate sleep. And if I could take a pill that would make me never have to sleep again, I would take that pill. That being said, I used to have a job where I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and got like four or five hours of sleep. Part of the reason I work here now is to try to hopefully not die uh, and have a more normal schedule. (laughs) On the other end of the scale, I am someone who sleeps about four hours a night. If I sleep more than six, I know that I'm sick. Yeah. So talk about what the human body requires, or is it really this vastly different between individuals and you can still maintain a level of health? So you'll commonly hear that the standard adult needs seven to eight hours of sleep, but that's a bell curve. There are people that do really well with four hours. There are people that need, you know, nine, 10 hours. Now, if you're on the extremes, it's more likely that there is some problem or it isn't good for your health. And that, you know, so if you're on vacation, if you have no stressors and you just naturally sleep and all you can do is four hours and you feel great during the day, then that may be what you need. But if you find you're sleeping in later on weekends or, you know, you're feeling tired, you probably probably do need more sleep than those four hours. But there there is people that can do it. Is the timing of sleep more important, like going to bed at a regular time and waking up at a regular time seven days a week and not drastically changing your schedule, as you mentioned, for the weekends or vacations and things like that? So we know even people that get, on average, the same sort of duration through a week, if they have what we call that social jet lag, we see, again, increased heart disease, increased metabolic disease, increased obesity. Kids don't do as well as school. They're more likely to be in car accidents. Um, They're more likely to choose to do drugs. You know, there's a lot of outcomes that are linked to having more regular sleep. So the more people can keep it aligned best within about an hour on weekends and weekdays, that is going to help the sleep the best and help the health the best. I kind of want to ask about happy lights. If trying to maintain a more natural interaction with the sun is goal, like what do like vitamin D like those solar like UV lights actually do, do they interrupt the cycle in a way that is harmful or beneficial? Like, So it's all about the time you're getting them. People that, you know, have seasonal depression and use a bright light, we prescribe it to use it in the morning. I had a patient who decided it was great for her needlepoint and started using it right before bed. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no that's not how you want to use it. So if we time the light, getting that extra light is, you know, can be really important for some people, but it is morning light. And that's the problem with daylight savings time. If we go to permanent daylight savings time in the winter in Massachusetts, we would have about two months with it dark after 8 a.m. People would be doing their whole morning routine, getting to work, you know, getting to school and potentially not get any exposure to morning light. And that's why it was so unpopular when we last tried it in 1974. There's no need to repeat history. It, it lasted, you know, about a month before the favorability just, you know, plummeted and they decided we needed to end this. 
So you're saying I would be depressed in the morning instead of at night if we went to permanent daylight savings time. You'd be depressed all day, but yes. <laughs> now I'm just going to be depressed at night starting this weekend when we switch back to, uh, to standard time. But for medical purposes, Dr. Karen Johnson believes this is the direction we should go and has testified on behalf of House Bill 3103 for permanent standard time. Where does that legislation um, stand right now? And what is, the, what is the likelihood that a House bill in the uh, Beacon Hill going to change uh, anything? You know, bills have a long way to go. They yeah. have to get past their initial committee. That's what we're hoping will happen now. Then they get to a next committee. And so if it can get past these committees and ultimately signed by the governor, what this bill would do is it would let us potentially go to permanent standard time. However, we have linked it to neighboring states. So Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire um, and Rhode Island would also have to pass a similar bill. So it does not immediately put us on permanent standard time, but it's such an important message, especially to the federal government, saying this is what we want. And I think if we start getting states, and I think Massachusetts would be the perfect state to lead the way. We lead the way on health causes, on causes for workers, on families, for children, you know, all the time. Let's lead on this bill, show the federal government that it's time to really end clock change in the in the most viable way. Are you at odds with U.S. Senator Markey, who wants to make permanent daylight savings time? I am. <laughs> we are <laughs> hoping to convince him. You know, he, he's been thinking about this issue for a long time. He, you know, back in 2008, pushed to extend daylight savings time to, to last longer. And then he's been pushing the end clock change. And when he started to push this, a lot of you, asked a lot of scientists, they would say, yeah, we just want to end it. A lot of the data that has really proven to us that permanent daylight savings time is worse has only come out since about 2017, 18, 19, and even later. We have evolved with the science. And so, you know, where he started, he was, he was right. We just now want him to evolve and support permanent standard time instead. The importance of sleep has really sort of gained momentum in recent years. Um, the American Heart Association just changed its Life Essential 7 or Life Simple 7 to Life's Essential 8. And they added sleep as really a pillar of heart health. We're seeing other organizations really say, you know, sleep actually is important. Well, Dang it. <laughs> like, you can't change these circadians. Like, they say four hours, and I just get up after four hours. It's yeah. just how it works. <laughs> Dr. Karen Johnson is a professor of neurology at UMass Chan Medical School and is the medical director of the sleep medicine program at Bay State here in Springfield, advocating for saving standard time and making it permanent. What, regardless of what you think about it, you should fall back with your clocks uh, this weekend. Don't forget, and we'll see how this goes forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. And hopefully in the future, we'll never have to do it again. <laughs> Coming up, to further our healthy lifestyle, we'll learn about a new agro-business turning apples into the old remedy called fire cider. But a visit to where the apples get their start. We'll head to Clarkdale Fruit Farm for a preview of this weekend's Franklin County Cider Days. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 885-NEP. This weekend, the first weekend of November, has historically been Franklin County Cider Days. Best time of the year! Don't sleep on Franklin County Cider Days because it has become this iconic Franklin County event. And joining us are some of the folks who are behind this year's Cider Days. What's your name? Ben Clark of Clarkdale Fruit Farms. Brady Shearer of Pine Hill Orchards. Field Maloney, West County Cider. I literally evangelize about this weekend. I have brought people from out of state. They stay with me and they tell people and have brought people. We eventually got to an entourage of about like 20 people going around for the weekend and people plan like their falls around this to come and hang out and go to all the stuff. It is my favorite. 
it's different than it has been in years past, but it's been going on for a long time. How long has Cider Days been going field? Since 1994, it started out in Coleraine, actually, at our tasting room, which at that point was on Pine Hill Orchards. Mm -hmm. So it started out both at West County and Pine Hill Orchards. Yeah. <laughs> From the beginning, it was not just about one place, but it was about getting people to go to all the different orchards across the county, sort of to get lost on back roads and beautiful places. And so like Ben and his father were there from the beginning. Which is where we are right now. We have come to Clarkdale to experience yes. a little bit of Cider Days on the radio. Right, so the, I mean, the neat thing partly about Cider Days is there's always been events in one, like this year, there's gonna be a lot of events at the Lampson Building in Shelburne Falls. And then there's gonna be a salon in Holly, but basically it's, it's been a chance to go all over the county. Celebrating the apple at the time when it's ripest to celebrate the apple. <laughs> and it really is, as Phil was saying, it's a celebration of all things apple. I mean, it really, it's, it was starting off Field and his parents really got it going with West County Cider, which was really the first craft cider, really the, in the, the resurgence of, of the cider movement. Now you, you know, get it everywhere, but they were the first and really trying to get, get. The first in the country. I mean, like there are other places in the world Coast, where cider yeah. is still big. We started in 84 and we're the longest running cider company in the country right now. I, there were a bunch of cider companies before. But they, they didn't make it, and, and West County did. And consistently top-tier quality stuff. Oh, yeah. like, I don't want to pick favorites, but I have. They're always, always good. One thing I want to say about Cider Days, though, is that Paul Carenti and Charlie Ochowski were part of the... They were the founders with all the people we're talking about here. And so I think it's important to mention their name. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Charlie! Yeah, they'll get mad if we don't. <laughs> Been there. But the great thing is it, it really was, I mean, it, it was a grassroots, you know, yeah. people who started it years ago and it has continued. And Pine Hill, Clarkdale, um, other orchards have kept it going. And, you know, we've always been involved. Pine Hill's really known for, they do large batches of specialty vintage cider blends for home cider makers, which, you know, you can make cider, hard cider out of any cider, um, not the stuff you buy in the store because it's, you know, that's no good. But Pasteurized. Right. Pasteurized, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Brady could tell, I mean, they do these these huge blends and people come from New Jersey, other places, they fill up their car with barrels and, and they've come every year. Brady Shearer from Pine Hill and Coleraine. Yeah, tell us about how you interact with the home cider making community. Yeah, so we, uh, this year we're, we're aiming to press about 3,000 gallons of cider. Um, and then we, you know, we do them into special blends. Um, so it's all apples that we normally wouldn't use in our regular sweet cider. Um, we do a lot of uh, a lot of just you know special cider varieties. Talk about um, some of those because I mean people know mm -hmm. Macintosh and people know Macown and all these other things. But what are the the weirdo awesome craft cider apples? Just a, you know a few of the ones that we have the most of this year. Um, we have you know, we'll have a lot of Redfield in there, um, Golden Russet, uh, Arkansas Black. We 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 have a good amount of those this year, so we'll get those in there too. Uh, Northern Spy, um, and then there's always my father-in-law always has some other good ones hidden up his sleeve that he's gonna uh, that he'll he'll pull out and and get into the mix too field maloney from west county your parents they wanted to make wine out of grapes and they they realized that this area is this was much better suited they, they moved it they, they they'd been living in california and they actually made wine as sort of home winemakers and then my father was was a doctor so he's really interested in the science of fermentation and, and i think wanted to farm so when they they moved out to Western Mass, 
you couldn't grow grapes. I mean, now, now people are growing more grapes here, but it's still, it's dicey. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> but, uh, but this was apple country. And I think the idea was, like George Washington said that Massachusetts had some of the best apples and cider in the, in, in the, in the country. That was a young country then. Now we're an old country, but I would say Massachusetts still has some of the best apples and cider in, in this country. And so it was, let's try to make something, uh, a beautiful drink through what's the uh, gold coin of the land, apples. The good thing about Franklin County is there's many gold coins, but apples are one of them. What's some of the things that are gonna be happening at Pine Hill in Coleraine as part of Cider Days? Because the idea is to explore the wonder and beauty of Franklin County via the means of an apple trail. Yeah, so our bulk cider sale will go on all weekend. It starts Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Go early yeah, because go they sell out. <laughs> we do. We sell out of certain varieties faster. We generally still have some um, some juice left on Sunday, um, but a lot of people do like to call first because Ben said we do sell out and the line starts long before we open. So don't don't be afraid to come before 9 a.m. We'll get you get you a good spot in line. And then we will have our food truck uh, open on Saturday this weekend too, with a lot of cider themed um, food options. You know, some different you know brie and apple grilled cheese and things like that that our, our chef is, is cooking up for us and um and we also we have um james Asbel from uh ciders of spain and he'll oh. be with us on oh. <laughs> my favorite he's, cider place he's apart awesome. from here he, he's no, wonderful because you haven't had ciders from Brittany. i have <laughs> no so he'll be, you haven't okay, <laughs> he'll be with us on saturday um as well so you can he'll, he'll sample a lot of his different ciders and he puts on quite a show with it too so he's a lot of fun to yeah. uh Spanish cider, you have to pour from a very high uh, yeah, place. It's got the whole pour. ritual. It is really fun and amazing. Yeah, no, he's he's wonderful. I heard you say salon, and I thought that was a feature that hadn't come back yet. So yeah, Field was referring to, there is a smaller scale salon. So um, Pete Mitchell up in Hawley, he's a cider maker up there as well, and does his own uh, small salon. So he does tastings. He has a tasting room open this weekend, but he also brings in guest cider makers from outside the region. So And like... Uh, uh, East Hampton Cider Project's going to be there. Going to be about five other cider houses at, at his salon. And then there's going to be a tasting, speaking of, of Brittany, Ciders of Europe at the Lampson Building in Shelburne Falls, which is sort of beautiful old wooden factory building that's been, been restored and right on the river there. So that's going to happen Saturday at 5, but there's also going to be lots of lectures and workshops there. You can get the audiobook version of her uh, autobiography and listen to it on the way. <laughs> to the tasting. Singing takes me to a mystical place where language doesn't matter anymore, where anything is possible. Who's oh, that's that? a different Brittany. I'm sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> West County is having, um, I'm friends with a couple that raises oysters off Cape Cod and they're coming with their oyster trucks. So they'll, and fresh, fresh farmed oysters off Cape Cod. So they'll Does be there. In, cider? Does it pair well with cider? It pair, pairs very well <laughs> with cider. I am sure. And, and it, it, like, like Brady's juice, it's there until it runs out. And it's <laughs> when is that happening? Saturday, Saturday and Sunday, 12, 12 to 5 for uh, oysters and will be open 10 to 5. At the tasting room near Apex? Yes. Or, yes. Yeah. yeah, so that's not where Apex. actual West County usually is, but they have a, a new-ish tasting room. That's our, our tasting room since... Uh, 2014 and we've been gradually one of the best views in franklin county there's i mean I'm, I'm here in a beautiful view right now so there's lots of beautiful views it's a 50 mile view so you can see mount monadnock three states and we've made walking trails and sort of picnic areas so part of getting to taste cider at west county is 
getting to see a grand and glorious view and if, if you choose to do a little stroll. And that's part of the beauty of Cider Days. What's going to be happening where we are right now? Good Ben Clark, fruit farmer from <laughs> Clarkdale Fruit Farm. I call him Good Ben Clark because there's another guy who was a Republican spin doctor for, for Frank Lutz. And his name is also Ben Clark, but he has an E at the end of his name for evil. <laughs> Although I, a very nice guy. I really, I do with all my heart love that man. And he loves that I call him evil Ben Clark, but that makes you the good Ben Clark. He, he, he used to write a, co a couple of vitriolic my turns in the Greenfield Recorder. That's, oh, a, no. that's where we differentiated. It's oh, all no. in good fun, but good Ben Clark. What'll be happening here at Clarkdale? Sure. Uh, so similar to um, Brady at Pine Hill, uh, we do special cider blends. We do a vintage blend, which is uh, similar apples, Northern Spy, Baldwin, Russet, really nice tannins there, really rich cider. Um, it's great for drinking. A lot of people, you know, come and just drink it straight, but we also get a lot of cider makers. We don't do large batches, so we smaller carboys and things that people fill up. We also do a pear cider, which is strictly pears. It's so amazing. Even, mm. though, even though it's Cider Day weekend, we, we you know, pear is, is, very, is very closely related. It's so. adjacent and so much harder to work with. It's way harder to make a good perry. Correct. Our, our pear cider is a very sweet product. It's made from Bosk and Magnus and Bartlett, all the dessert pears. Um, so that's all weekend. We will have tastings and sales. And then 10 a.m. on Saturday, uh, there's a cider pressing demo with Owesco Equipment Company from Conway. We have 11 a.m. on Sunday, Sweet Lucy from Sweet Lucy's Bake Shop is doing a um, apple stru uh, strudel demonstration and, nice. uh, and talk. Um, and then my father and I will be doing some uh, history talks as well and some other demos. Yeah, because you're Father Tom Clark was part of that original Cider Days crew with Fields' parents from West County. Oh, one, one, one cool thing is every year at Pine Hill, they leave a few trees unpruned. Because the thing about Cider Days is it always comes after all the trees have been pruned. But they always leave two old trees unpruned, and there's going to be a pruning demo. Often pruning demonstrations, you're looking at, like, pictures of pruning. Mm -hmm. Here you're out at two trees that are unpruned and you watch Brady's father-in-law, David Shearer and William Shearer, no relation pruning. So that that's a kind of uh, cool. It's a great thing for home home orchardists that, yeah. you know, and that's the thing, a lot of this we talk about is, you know, hard cider, cider making, but it's also about the apple production and people want to come and, and that's a great, great opportunity for people. A lot of people have a home tree, you know, or they're just interested and, and it's a great thing that we try to, as we say, all things apple. You're trying to do it from growing the apple, eating the apple, making the cider, drinking hard cider. And Matt Kaminsky, or for the last years, has done an exhibit of uh, traces out rare and unusual apples. So if you really want to apple out. It's apple nerd, apple nerd out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's gonna be at the Williamsburg Grange Hall uh, on Friday. And it, it was funny, Brady mentioning the Redfield in the blend this year. The neat thing about Redfield, like when you bite into it, it's kind of a fun prank apple if you're walking through an orchard because you bite into it or you have someone else bite into it and they look at it and the flesh is red yeah very rare but super cool super cool <laughs> you all three of you really are kind of like generation two of cider days mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. tell me about what continuing that legacy that your parents all started of this thing that has really created nationwide this resurgence of craft cider there wouldn't be an angry orchard which believe it or not has some really good boutique um, yeah. don't, vintages. don't get the lay stuff with Angry Orchard. Yeah, no. Trust us. Yeah. But like, if you find one of their single bottles, like the stuff you can find in 750s, is not terrible. But we have your parent. <laughs> we, we have your parents to blame for that. Angry Orchard. But speaking of Angry Orchard, here's a fun fact. There's many fun cider days fun facts. But Sam Adams Angry Orchard came out to cider days in the early mid, no late 90s. Because cider days was the original. If you want, if you were interested in cider making, now there's more. 
you know, cider, there's more avenues, but cider, cider Days was kind of the original avenue. So I would say that it's not an exaggeration to say that it not only launched thousands and thousands of home cider makers, but it's also a bunch of the cider companies that you see today came through cider days and got inspired by cider days so it's 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 i mean partly as a you know being being the second generation or whatever there's just a pride in seeing this thing that has you know been special and had this legacy and then that it keeps going i mean sometimes you're you're amazed that it keeps going sometimes your knuckles are, well, <laughs> but it's going and i think and i think to that point is you know second generation something as field was was getting to is is you know imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that that we are the, the longest you know running there have been multiple i mean there's a new york cider week there's boston west coast chicago cider con all these that have popped up since you know they saw the popularity people went home and said oh i want to do that we still are the longest continually running and we take pride in that. And you still have the best ciders coming <laughs> Coming up, we'll hear how these apple farmers fared after the devastating frosts back in May and see what, if any, impact the frost will have on Cider Days this weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're here at Clarkdale Fruit Farm in which Deerfield East, you say? This, we're in West Deerfield, West Deerfield, which is even on the maps, much to Monty's uh, I don't believe that West Deerfield exists. I believe that there's Deerfield and South Deerfield, and that's it. You have a giant fake apple that says Clarkdale on it. On Route 2, the Johnny Appleseed rest stop, they claim to have the largest apple in New England. There is no way that apple is bigger than your fake apple well, that's back here. The only thing I'll give them is theirs is a complete apple. <laughs> it's a, it is fully round, whereas ours is, is a half. So, Dude, it'd be so easy. I West know. Deerfield. It'd be so easy to fill in the blank. Uh, yes, I, I agree. We will work on that for next year. West Deerfield. I don't believe him. Hey, little apple Joining us are some of the folks who are behind this year's Cider Days. Ben Clark of Clarkdale Fruit Farms. Brady Shearer, Pine Hill Orchards. Field Maloney, West County Cider. And we're not obviously not the largest. We are, you know, it's it's Franklin County and sort of adjacent. We, we you know, we have have other orchards and cider makers and the, and the uh, surrounding counties, but it really does draw in people from, you know, New York area, Boston, Connecticut, Vermont. We get a lot of people that come back every year, even though we're not doing the salon, the large salon, some other things, we still have a following. People still come in, get their cider, meet, you know, meet up with their friends, you know, to Cleese's point, you know, people come in and really do spend the weekend and it's a and great share time. their cider. Oh, that's another yeah. cool oh, thing. Yeah is there's going to be a home cider make a cider share from uh 6 30 to 8 30 at the Lampson building in in Shelburne Falls that's a Saturday from 6 30 to 8 30 at the Lampson building and so home cider makers are encouraged to come share their cider uh of course drink responsibly and then stumble out and, and support local businesses because that's always been the thing too but don't stumble out too much we don't want any have stumbling out you can have an open container on the Buckland side of Shelburne Falls if you didn't know that Shelburne side of Shelburne Falls no open containers on the street Buckland side yes open containers and you, also won't, you also won't be able to walk across the bridge of flowers i think no. it closed yesterday yes. what about you brady shearer who from pine hill in Colerain, and you are all the second generation of keeping this event alive yeah so i'm my husband uh grew up in this um you know and i i obviously have learned it all for us to be able to you know step in and take over that role from his father is is we're proud of that um and i think that his father's pretty proud of what what we've done to continue it going um on our farm and i think you know, I, I think as far as, as farming in general, I think it's it's wonderful to be able to continue that on. I think you don't see it everywhere. So I think for us and for Ben, you know, to, to be able to continue that on and to have that family farm continue to go is, 
is wonderful and we're, we're proud of that so the timing of this and which has always been the first week in november and the timing going back to to when terry and and yes, paul since the and beginning Charlie, it's always been the first weekend in november mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's going back to that time is they had worked with the orchards uh, with the shearers and ourselves mm-hmm. and tim smith other people and, and that's a time that you know we're past the harvest season but you know we haven't ramped up for thanksgiving when we get busy again so it was sort of the shoulder season we still sometimes have foliage but you know there's more availability for rooms so it's it's been great because usually there's a lull in business for us you know this time of year there's a you know and then we'll pick up again closer thanksgiving but as it's become and i'm sure it's true for for pine hill is it's the one of our busiest weekends i mean there's, there's such a such a huge turnout of people and you know we're we're offering more products and things so it really does in terms of helping local agriculture especially in a year like this which was so so hard for a lot of us um you know it's it's just a great thing that it's continued and there are support ceases supporting you know there's all these other groups that really support us i wasn't sure if i wanted to ask about the frost because i know it's still affecting everything even though both of them happened in the first half of the year but how has the frost affected apple yields for cider versus yielding apples and how do those affect each other and cider days you know, I think for us, we we definitely ended up with less than half a crop um, from the frost damage that we, you know, that we got. It, you know, as far as eating apples as opposed to cider apples, it really just kind of depended on where they sat on the farm um, and where the frost settled. For us, a lot of the cider apples were affected. Luckily, we grow enough that we still have plenty for cider days. Um, you know, we don't have as many varieties as we would normally have. But, um, you know, we've definitely got plenty to make it work. You know, it's it's definitely been a tough year all around for that. But we're tough and we're going to keep going through it. The events like Cider Days, you know, we still can bring a lot of people to your farm even when you don't have the full crop that you have. So we love being a part of events like this that even on a tough year, there's still plenty of reason to, you know, come out, come to Pine Hill, go to Clarkdale, go visit Field up at West County. We're all still here and we're going to be for a long time. You know, we're, we're happy to be part of the community and we love... Uh, we love that we can can serve you. And I'd say on that on that note that there's something a, a special savor to cider days this year because I don't know I bet your numbers are pretty down too right like half. So we lost seventy percent of our apple yeah. crop. Yeah. yeah. And and so m- most of the orchards that we work with at West County Cider are, are like that. We really had to scavenge. There we found one a friend of mine who uh, is north facing hillside in Ashfield that his orchard was loaded. He says he's never been hit by the last 18 frosts. And, and there was an orchard right a mile away that was totally wiped out. Mm-hmm. So it was it was very uh, sort of unpredictable, but basically it was uh, a lot of losses for all the orchards I've, t- I've talked to through the county. So there's a, a special savor for this cider days because it, it just reminds you how precious apples are and how, <laughs> how precious that crop is and how delicate it is and, and how I don't think that people look at, at the apple crop as being such a delicate thing, but it is, you know, and it, it, it can be affected by so many things. It's not just the frost. There's hundreds the, the of rain. other things. The yeah. rain was hard <laughs> on. Just, it's, it's never ending. <laughs> the things that can. They, but they I can. would say, yeah, I would say, I mean, yes, we, we definitely had a similar to, to Pine Hill had, and other orchards, you know, had, had a lot of loss. And even the apples that we harvest there were you know there was frost rings there was you know russeting different issues which fortunately for both of us and, and the orchards in the in the counties we are you know retail primarily and we can sell apples people are understanding of you know yes it's not the prettiest but it still tastes great mm-hmm. and the apples that are too ugly we make cider with and that both both of our, our, our farms are fortunate that you know there's there's little loss in terms of you know waste on the farm because we're harvesting everything we can we sort through it and we make cider out of it and we still get a good product that you know we can get something for do frost rings affect the flavor of the cider when you age it? 
better no. or worse? No. no, just just there, and it's it's just a thing. Look weird. They look just weird. weird. Yeah. I kind of like the way they look. Actually, it's like the so, Saturn of apples. Well, then there's like Frankenstein apples, all kinds of cool stuff for Halloween. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Check the Franklin County Cider Days. It's called ciderdays.org, which has a full schedule. But Matt Kaminsky is going to have, who's also known as Gnarly Pippins. That's his nom de plume or his nom de cider. Uh, nom de palm. Nom, oh. nom de palm. That's pretty good. Uh, You're welcome. But 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 he's he's going to have selections of different apple varieties that people can taste both at the Williamsburg Grange on Friday and then at the Lampson building. So there will be, if people are interested in tasting the extreme variety of heirlooms, people were doing interesting things around here with heirloom apples for a long time. Coming up, more apples, but these ones are aflame. We'll hear about a new local hero business, Albin's Fire Cider. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Having three children, my house has at times been a Petri dish of illnesses. What do you mean at times every house with children is a Petri dish? It's getting better now that they're getting older, but a friend of mine named Steve the Hippie one time gave me this tiny little tincture that had all this stuff in it and spicy, delicious things, and I have forever called it Steve the Hippie tincture, but I would take it when I was starting to feel a little bit ill. Sometimes that magic substance is called Fire Cider. And it's time for a local hero spotlight with Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks, and Kara Peters, who is from Greenfield, who is a new entrepreneur making Albin's tried and true Fire Cider. Snake oil or a real health benefit, Kara Peters? Anything and all of the above. <laughs> Tell us, for, the, for those who don't know or aren't friends with Steve the Hippie, uh, what goes into what we're calling fire cider? I get the question all the time, what is fire cider? Because most people don't really know. Um, and I just say fire cider is basically an apple cider vinegar that's infused with a bunch of healthful ingredients. There are many, many recipes out there and many fire ciders out there, but mine has in it um, apple cider vinegar, honey, jalapeno, horseradish, black pepper, onions, garlic, lemon, rosemary, turmeric, and ginger. Didn't even have to look it up. I have said that probably a billion times. <laughs> <laughs> and what's cool about your fire cider is that you, being from Greenfield, are sourcing all this stuff, or as much of it as you can, from the local farms? Absolutely. I love working with the local farms. They're my partners in this. Um, I get my turmeric and my ginger from Old Friends Farm in Amherst, honey from Shelburne Honey, my apple cider vinegar from Apex Orchards. I actually get my horseradish fairly locally on Long Island from Schmidt's Farm, and I recently started getting my garlic from Shady Corner Farm in Sherburne. And then Kitchen Garden Farm, I also get some things from them too. They make all sorts of good hot mm -hmm. stuff there. I have also encountered fire cider mostly in the valley and a little bit before. And this is the fourth or fifth company I've seen doing fire cider. Mm -hmm. What makes yours different from other folks in the market? Well, one, I source from our local area. And I think that's really important. But 
mine actually tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> Steve the Hippie Tincture was an acquired taste. Maybe we should taste this. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you've all had Fire Cider before? Yes. Yeah. I cannot remember the specific program, if it was Science Friday or if it was Radio Lab, but there was a bit about the most of the standard ingredients that you usually find in Fire Cider. That would be the, the apple cider vinegar, the honey, onion of some sort, and or garlic, and how that particular recipe has been around since like the 15, 1600s and does actually work. People use it for basic immunity, um, overall gut health, inflammation. All the ingredients have antioxidants in them. So the list of how people use it for health and wellness is very, very long. Better not to narrow it down because then people look at you and go, hey. It's whatever else, yeah. So have you tried? I have. It's very spicy. I mean, Mm -hmm. for normals. Um, But it's got a sweetness that a lot of the other fire ciders do not have. So it does feel like a refreshing sweet beverage, too. This is the best since the very first one that I had at a Maker's Fair in Northampton many, many, many years ago. I don't think that company exists anymore. And been looking for a good substitute since. So, Oh, excellent. So Monty mentioned Petri dishes. Was that the inspiration for yours? (laughs) <laughs> Not because really. of your kids getting you sick at home? <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, Monty. That was, that was the Not connection Exactly. Um, yeah, when they were young, um, I wanted to just try to make as many healthy, natural things for them. Elderberry syrup. I started doing lacto-fermentation and fire cider from ingredients from my own garden. Now, you work full-time for Community Action, which is a great uh, social service organization run by the former mayor of Northampton, Mary Claire Mm -hmm. Higgins. But this is kind of your side hustle now since last year, right? Tell us what made you want to take the leap from helping your kids feel better to getting these gorgeous, the label's beautiful, this shelf-stable product to be able to go sell. Yeah, it was a long process, and I wanted to to quit many times, actually. <laughs> I used to just make it for my friends and family, and I would make extra, and one person, one person, just took one, said, um, you should sell this. And I'm like, no way, that is too huge. But then I um, made that one, that first phone call to the um, Franklin County CDC and the Western Mass Food Processing Center just to inquire, you know, what would it take to start selling this? And three years later, I got my wholesale license. So it was only just that little birdie in my ear that made me think, oh, I actually can do this. This is something that I could be very passionate about. Was there anything challenging about the process of moving to being wholesale that you weren't necessarily expecting after talking to both of those organizations? Well, the whole process was really challenging. Every step of the way, I learned there was something else I had to do. Getting the labels done, getting the nutrition information down, getting it tested, and getting a scheduled process. There's so much that went into that. And when I finally had it down and got my wholesale license, I'm like, oh, great. Oh, no. Oh, now I actually have to be a salesperson, which I part of this, which I didn't think I had it in me at all. And so that was really challenging. But right off the bat, I started working, calling co-ops and stores. And I guess they just heard my excitement for it and and were happy to take me on. And now you're in like 25 different outlets. I am all over the Valley, Vermont, um, the Berkshires. Um, a few of the stores are um, Greenfield's Market. They were my first in Greenfield. And then there's Cornucopia in Northampton and Randall's Farm in Ludlow. I'm also in Clarkdale Fruit Farm and Park Hill Orchard. And I also do a lot of events. Farmer's Markets, the Winter's Farmer's Markets are coming up. Um, I just did the Garlic and Arts Festival. I was going to say, I yep. saw you at Garlic you and did? Arts. You mm-hmm. did? Uh, it was, in th- I, that was amazing. I sold 230 bottles of fire cider. Wow. 
That's great. I was really shocked. Thank um, God for pandemic. I know. And some old school classic home remedies to try to feel better. We're talking about fire cider with Kara Peters from the new business, Albin's Tried and True Fire Cider. Tell us about the name of it. Albin's yeah. is the um, was the name of my great-grandfather when he came over here from Sweden. And um, when he got his uh, citizenship, they changed their names to Albion, A-L-B-I-O-N, which became my maiden name. Uh, fire cider is Albin's, which is A-H-L-B-I-N. Was this a recipe that came over with him? Is that like, is that why you're paying homage? No, I'm paying homage to uh, just the tradition of family mm-hmm. and keeping ancestors alive. Was there not some sort of debate about the proprietary term fire cider that was in the news within the last couple of years where somebody was trying to make it seem like it was their thing, even though, as Khalees mentioned and as other people have said in this conversation, this is a kind of an ancient recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this company tried to trademark the, the name fire cider and they did and then lost the court case in, in the long run. You can't trademark chicken soup. So yeah. You can't trademark fire cider. <laughs> Fun fact, though, that that company actually started at the Western Mass Food Processing Center, just like I am. And for those who you mentioned it already before, yeah. If, yeah. if people aren't familiar with that and the Franklin County CDC and how those things work together, can you tell us about what, what that's all about? Well, the Franklin County CDC is an amazing support for our community, for small businesses and entrepreneurs. Community Development Corporation, not Center for Disease yes. Control. Yes, absolutely. And under them is the processing center. And they um, take on all sorts of entrepreneurs and and food products that we know. Phil, you probably have some under, you know, some of them. A lot of them started there, whether real pickles, Appalachian Mm -hmm. Naturals. And a lot of times uh, folks graduate from there when their quantities get to be a certain amount. And they may choose to create their own little micro processing centers. But not everyone. Mm -hmm. A lot Mm -hmm. just stay there and keep producing great products. Yeah, I really love working with them. Um, I, I make my product with them, and I'm there with gas masks on while we um, process that horseradish. <laughs> you can weaponize it, so yeah, good thinking. Um, no, I really enjoy everyone there. They, you know, they're all so wonderful to work with. Um, such a support. I'm wondering, Kara, anecdotally, are you hearing from any of your customers saying, oh, I felt like a little bit of uh, fever coming on or stuffy nose, and I started to take some of your fire cider and it cleared me right up? Or I hear it all the time. It is amazing. And so a lot of times people come to me and they say, will it help me with this? Will it help me with that? And I said, I'm not a doctor. However, this is how I use it, and this is how I know that other people use it. And yeah, I, I hear stories all the time from from people who take it daily because they have you know aches and pains in their bodies or they have stomach issues. So it warms my heart, literally, when I drink my fire cider. But it warms my heart when I hear stories like that. So, and how does Jim at Hope and Olive use it? Okay, so this is what I love to talk about: is how fire cider can be used in the kitchen. Because uh, not everybody wants to drink vinegar. Well, I do. But yeah, that's, me too. That's We're me. Weird. We're right. weird. <laughs> Right, like I love the taste of it just like this. And yes. if it is too strong, you can add it to hot water and make a tea out of it. But there's so many other uses for fire cider in the kitchen. Cocktails is one of them. So as Phil mentioned, um, Hope and Olive had a fire cider hot toddy oh. with my fire cider, fire cider last winter. Um, Bloody Marys, it's, it is the Bloody Mary. It's the Bloody Mary mix. All you do is add the tomato juice and um, the vodka. But I also use it in recipes. So salad dressings, marinades, coleslaw. Um, and I actually brought some salad dressing for you to try with bread. So what did you add to the salad dressing besides your fire cider? Well, it has all those yummy, yummy ingredients. You need nothing else but a little olive oil and a pinch of salt, maybe. Mm -hmm. And when I show people this at events, this is really what sells it because most people people don't know what fire cider is. And I tell them about all the health benefits and how to use it in the kitchen. And it's when I, when they taste this, that's when they, they're like, okay, yep, I'll buy one. (laughs) 
So I, I think you sort of had an interesting career path so far. You know, we talked previously, so I know you began with flute, moved into music therapy, nonprofit administration, and now a tonic that solves all the world's problems. Ah, yes. I, I see where you're going with that. I like to help people. <laughs> Got the Albans Fire Cider mixed with olive oil on bread. I mean, it's already good on its own. So when mm. you add olive oil, it's just going to get better. Mm. Yeah, it oh, makes yeah. it rich, savory. Right. I have lots of fire cider at home. So I took a whole gallon and I boiled it down to two cups and made a reduction. Mm. And I put that over salmon and I put that over chicken and also ice cream. Wow. If you take your reduction and add, like, when you get to the point where it's, like, really, really syrupy, add in a tablespoon of butter and you've basically got a gastric. You get a certain richness for reducing, but like when you add a little bit of fat afterwards, it loosens your sauce a little bit and it adds a certain mouthfeel, adds unctuousness. Um, Is that how you say that word? Yes. Unctuous. It's a throwback to the wine segment. (laughs) So it's not just for hippie drinking flu remedy. You can use it in other aspects of cooking as well. Can and you bring also, out the oh, salmon now? If you are interested in making it into cocktails and like straight vinegar is not necessarily your thing, when we're in high fruit season, this is a really great base for a shrub. You'll have something that is a little bit sweeter and fruit infused and you can put it with like seltzer, put it in cocktails. This is a really great base for that too and maintains all those healthful properties that it originally had. Plus you're coming off of the uh, the apple growing season and that's the mm-hmm. kind of main ingredient of this fire cider here. Apple cider vinegar. In fact, I will be at Clarkdale Fruit Farm for the Franklin County Cider Days on Sunday doing some demos from 11 to 1 if you want to come and try it. Cider Days is the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kara <laughs> Peters from Franklin County, from Greenfield, with this new year-old business, Albans Tried and True Fire Cider with apple cider vinegar, raw honey, lemon, ginger root, horseradish, onion, turmeric root, garlic, rosemary, black pepper, and jalapeno. It's ri- I have it written down. You had Even to read it. Kara has done it a billion times. Yeah, but we're not making it, so we don't have to know what's in it. Yeah, we, we just, just have to know that it works for us, yeah. and then we can move on. We can enjoy it. And Phil Corman from Season the Local Hero, folks, who deals with all of the farms that go into making this farm-based product. You can find out about all of our local heroes at buylocalfood.org. If you're hoping to hear McGovern with McGovern this week, he had to punt until next week because of important house business. But you can always send your questions for him at thefab413 at nepm.org. In our last few minutes, a quick plywood ramp to the weekend, getting us ready on Thursday evening, heading to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On Saturday is Cultural Connections, which is a book fair right here in Springfield, happening at the Elias Brookings Elementary School from 1 to 5. It's specifically focusing on BIPOC-oriented children's books and more, but it is for everybody. So you can look up Cultural Connections. There's information on that online. And speaking of books, the Grand Reef opening of Roundabout Books in East Hampton. It's an adaptive reuse of the building that is now focusing on accessibility and environmental sustainability. They're also going to have Tracy Grammer and Jim Henry, local hero musicians, performing there as part of that on Sunday. There is a benefit for the Hospital Fisher Home, which is happening. When is that happening? It's happening Sunday night at the Shea. Oh, of course you know that. (laughs) Healing Waters, curated selections of original stories told from the stage to benefit the hospice of the Fisher Home. And of course, previous guests, Lizzie, their show opens on Friday, runs through next weekend. But Friday on the Fabulous 413, it's a dance party for Live Music Friday. Get ready to move to the exciting sounds of B 
BCUC out of South Africa before they head over to Gateway City Arts in Hoyoke this weekend. And speaking of reasons to party. One of our regular Thunderdome locations is having a birthday, so we'll head to the Berkshires to toast Dare Bottle Shop and Provision's second birthday with Ben and Mary Dare. Ben Dare, done that. Stop it. Plus the final installment of Books for Young People with our Media Lab fellows. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Suitcase Junket, Dolly Parton, Erica Badu, Chibo Mato, The White Stripes, Santo and Johnny, Billie Eilish, and The Apples. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Glee Smith. Thanks to our tireless, fabulous 413 team, and we'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413.